First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. This is WJCT News 89.9 in Jacksonville. Opinions expressed on the Friday Media Roundtable are those of our panelists and do not necessarily reflect the views of WJCT News. Donna Deegan leads in a new poll of the city's mayor's race. Duval Schools wants the public's help to review books taken off school shelves. And the city council has banned panhandling in the city. Some of the stories making headlines this week. Good Friday morning. We're live with you from Studio 2. I'm Melissa Ross, and this is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, all of the week's top stories with our Friday roundtable, and you can join us. It's 549-2937. Then later in the hour, the CEO of Winterland, the popular music festival, will tell us all about next weekend's show on the Jacksonville Riverfront. That's later in the hour, so keep listening for that. But first, it's Friday, and here to round up the week's news, we welcome in studio Mike Mendenhall of the Jacksonville Daily Record. Good morning. Good morning, Melissa. Regular contributor Charles Griggs. Good morning, Melissa. Former City Council President Jack Webb. Good morning. And joining us on Zoom, A.G. Gankarski of our own Jacks Today. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Good to have you guys. And we are live right now on the radio, live video stream up now as well on Facebook and YouTube. Watch along with us as we begin with our top story. You know, voters are already casting ballots to decide the next mayor of this city. And a new poll from St. Pete Polls gives us our first glimpse into who you all might be favoring out there. Leading the pack of the seven candidates on the ballot is Democrat Donna Deegan. She pulled nearly twice as much as any other candidate, polling at 35%. On the Republican side, Jack's Chamber CEO Daniel Davis and City Council Member Leanna Cumber have multi-million dollar war chests at their disposal. So far, though, the new poll shows just about 17% of voters pick Davis and just 4% of voters say they'd vote for Leanna Cumber if the election were held today. Councilmember Al Ferraro has 10% support, second place among Republican candidates. Former State Senator Audrey Gibson, a Democrat, is at about 10% support now. So here's the deal. Only two candidates can advance to a May runoff. That's assuming no one candidate pulls more than 50% of the vote in the March unitary election. We begin the hour with a closer look at the city's mayor's race. Let us know who you're supporting. Give us a call. It's 549-2937, 549-2937. Emails to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Tweets to at Melissa in Jacks. Facebook always open. AG, let's begin with you. St. Pete polls giving Donna Deegan a, Deegan rather, a very healthy lead in the mayor's race. She benefits from high name recognition, and she's been running a very positive campaign, issues-oriented campaign, which is a contrast to the mudslinging we've seen amongst the Republican candidates who've already taken to the airwaves with really negative ads. Can you break down some of the numbers for us? Yeah, I mean, the Deegan number is pretty consistent with what the UNF polling has shown, uh, mid-30s range. Um, Daniel Davis um, getting up to 17.5, that's his best showing in any poll. Um, That suggests that the second ticket to May um, he's going to have that over Leanna Cumber. And the Davis-Cumber thing has been kind of like a functional Republican primary. We've seen 
um, the advertising techniques like you would see in a Republican primary for, you know, gerrymandered congressional seat or something. Um, it's been very no holds barred. They haven't been scared to drive up each other's negatives. Um, Al Ferrero getting his 10%. Um, that's interesting to me because he's kind of the Bill Bishop candidate of this, you know, like Bill Bishop in 2015, he had his floor, he had a ceiling, but he had his cadre of voters. And it appears that those voters are being drawn from Davis and Cumber pretty equally. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where those go in the end. Um, I'm hearing a lot of Deegan people talking about things like closing it out in March, things like that. I would caution that's very much a rational exuberance. Um, Audrey Gibson's support is not going to go away. Um, maybe some of the scientists come over to Deegan. But what I'm expecting is that, especially the Davis campaign, realizes that they need to start throwing some mud in Donna Deegan, too. They need to start rehearsing some of that oppo. Um, and there's there's stuff there they can deploy, obviously, like her backing Andrew Gillum, who's now a disgrace figure in, in mainstream politics because of personal issues. Um, so there's a lot of positive there, but I, I feel like the 35% for Deegan, um, it, it's leading Democrats to think they're in a stronger position than they might actually be. Um, if you're Davis and you're polling 17.5%, you come in with 20, 25%. In March, you can say, we outperformed the polls, we shut the critics down, now we're going on to May. Um, so while this is a positive poll for Donna Deegan, while it validates a lot of what she's doing, um, there are caution flags here. And you know, the fact is that Davis, assuming he emerges to May, is going to have a lot more resources um, than Donna Deegan. 5492937. I think it's a safe assumption this will go to a May runoff. And Let's say it uh, comes down to a choice between Democrat Donna Deegan, the CEO of the Donna Foundation, former popular news anchor, Daniel Davis, uh, head of the Jack's Chamber, former lawmaker himself. Uh, partisanship will certainly play a role in this race. At the same time, these are two really interesting candidates uh, who uh, have very different visions, Mike Mendenhall, for what they would do for this city. Uh, Donna Deegan has talked a lot about infrastructure, building, rebuilding community trust, health care issues. Daniel Davis has adopted more conservative positions on all of these issues, although he has a platform he's been talking about as well. And then let's not leave out all of these other candidates who uh, are putting on positive faces, even in the light of these new numbers. Mike. Yeah. So, I mean, if it, like you said, Melissa, if it does come down between uh, Donna Deegan and and um, and uh, D uh, Daniel Davis in the runoff, uh, it'll be interesting to see the posture that, that Daniel Davis takes. I mean, right now we've seen a very negative campaign uh, against Leanna Cumber, as, as A.G. has said. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll see we'll see how that plays against somebody like Donna Deegan, who has you know, really spent the last few decades kind of building a positive message for her, for herself and, and just in her life's work with, with with running the Donna Foundation and raising money for for cancer. And, um, you know, she, she does, is well, well liked in Jacksonville. So we'll see how that kind of tone, if that's the tone that Daniel Davis takes, or if he starts to, 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 you know, to, to really, to kind of mix it up and, and have more of a positive message for him, uh, you know, kind of uh, producing himself. I, I, you know, and I think, I, I think that, you know, you look at, you look at this race, you look at the, at the, the, the negative ads between uh, between Leanna Cumber and, and Daniel Davis. And it really, it appears from the poll numbers that it is benefiting both Don Deegan and Al Ferraro. 
Um, you, you see, you see that you know Al Ferraro is uh, pulling in double digits. Where I think there are a lot of people that were, were uh, weren't convinced that he was going to make make that. He's pulling ahead of Leanna Cumber, who's already spent a lot of money on this contest. Uh, Donna Deegan has raised less, but she's had to spend less too. Charles Griggs. Yeah, for Donna Deegan, the name recognition really, really helps, and it really helps her to you know outperform some of the noise that's been going on with the negative campaigning between uh, Davis and Cumber. Um, it will be, I and mean, this is one of those things where we're looking at these campaigns. This is the first time we really had a landscape to kind of balance what the campaigns have been all about. You know, we've been seeing a lot of negative ads between two candidates, and we haven't been able to really kind of get a snapshot of what that's actually doing. Now we sort of get a snapshot of what that's actually doing. Donna Deacon has been really you know, kind of leaning into, um, you know, snapping back at the good old boy system, um, not at any particular person like uh, Cumber and Davis, and that sort of served her well along with the positive campaigning. Uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with uh, uh, the the Ferraro and Gibson campaigns because both think, at 10 percent right, with very right. little uh, money on very hand for money. either one. Yeah. Ferraro himself has used even the, the, the little bit of money he's had. He spent that on uh, positive ads, you know, kind of painting himself as a, a conservative. And I believe, you know, sort of things like what happened, which I think we'll be talking about later, uh, the, the, you know, the situation with Pumpkin Hill, you know, in his district, I think that's benefited him in some ways because, you know, the tension was, attention was called to him, you know, to be a leader in that process, even though they didn't win. Um, you know, he, he made it look like he was standing up for the citizens in that, in that particular situation. So I think situations like that have benefited him. And of course, Audrey Gibson has, you know, she's got legislative experience and, and, you know, but she doesn't have any, you know, the, the type Former of money. Former state lawmaker. Yeah, she, but she doesn't have the type of money it takes in order to, to break through uh, some of these undecided voters, but I'm I'm really interested to see how they perform and what that's going to do, what kind of impact that's going to have on on both the campaigns. And the Pumpkin Hill Preserve was uh, a city council vote to approve planned development near that Pumpkin Hill Preserve. Uh, many people spoke out very loudly right. against this. The city council voted ten to nine and went ahead with it anyway. Uh, Jack Webb, former city council president. Uh, you know, uh, let's just close. You've supported some of the mayoral candidates with your checkbook. That's correct. Your thoughts on this poll? Uh, it, it, Chip O'Neill, all politics are local, right? Uh, and it's good to see in many respects. Uh, I had a lunch with Donna a couple of months ago, and I will. Donna said at the time, she goes, I believe it's going to be Daniel Davis and me in a runoff. And I was kind of like, okay, all right. You know, thinking, all right, well, you know, other candidates have raised a lot of money here, so not really thinking, but apparently Donna knows the city. And I'll, I'll say that, uh, with regards to Ferraro, uh, well, I, let me back up and say this. I, I think what you're seeing is that in order to prevail, you need a natural constituent base. And Donna has that at the beaches. Donna has, is very popular. She's got the name recognition. I think Daniel has that to a certain extent as well, obviously. And, uh, so does Al. And so, and, and Al's pulling from Daniel and Audrey is pulling from Donna. So it, I think that the wild cards, where do those votes go? It, assuming that we go to a runoff and I think we will, uh, it, it's interesting to see, uh, very with regards to Al, um, you know, we, we could, we'll get to pumpkin Hill, but I have, I have thoughts about that as well. Well, if we have time, we'll get into that in a, a little more, but uh, give us a call. Uh, the mayor's race is just around the corner. Who will get your vote? Five four nine two nine three seven. Mark and Mandarin. Hello, Mark. Go ahead. 
Uh, hi. In the 2003 mayoral race, uh, we had seven debates, four before the runoff and three for the runoff. Uh, I watched them all. I took notes. I found it extremely helpful in finding out about the candidates in depth, uh, more so than than I would otherwise have gotten. I don't know who to support now. Are we going to have debates? And I'll take my answer off the air. You know what? Uh, you can let me make a shameless plug for our voter guide at jackstoday.org, where you can learn about the candidates and their positions. A.G. Gankarski, uh, there have been a number of forums already. I moderated one just uh, a week or so ago at the Interfaith Center. And whether we're going to get all of these candidates together on a stage before the election, I'm not sure that's happening. Yeah, I'm not either. And, you know, part of it is the logistics of it. You've got um, seven qualified candidates on the ballot. You've got to write in Brian Griffin. That's That makes eight. And, um, you know, any sort of television debate that goes an hour with these candidates has one or two choices to make. You either cut off people based on polling data. And, you know, where do you make that cutoff? Do you make it at 10 percent? Do you make it at 5 percent? If you make it at 5 percent, is St. Pete's poll, Leanna Cumber, who has burned through a ton of money already, would not make the stage. Um, so you'd have those kind of logistical questions in play. Um, it's, it's clear the advertising is doing more work in this race than in previous. It's reminiscent of 2015 in many respects, where you saw Lenny Curry and Alvin Brown um, with the budgets to, to spend freely. Um, and, and what I'm looking for this time is You'll probably see more debating after runoff than before, but it's it's been pretty quiet on that front so far. Um, it's it's led to a general perception that this campaign hasn't been about much in terms of issues. Um, voters don't know where they are in terms of say, you know, Jaguar Stadium improvements. Um, you know, how many hundreds of millions of dollars um, are going to be spent from city coffers uh, to put a cover on the stadium? When Shad Khan and Tony Khan certainly aren't losing money, um, you know, Tony Khan's bidding against himself uh, buying professional wrestlers. That gives you an idea of how the cons are doing. Um, so I, I'm curious to see how a candidate would handle those questions, um, handle future labor union negotiations, because that's always an issue. Um, it, it feels like you've seen a number of these candidates, specifically Davis and Cumber, um, do whatever they could to get public safety union support. Um, that comes at a price tag, as um, any mayor can tell you. Um, John Payton dealt with the FOP, you know, when Nelson Cuba was running it. Um, Lenny Curry tangled with the Fraternal River Police also when Steve Zeno was running it. Um, if you've already said, hey, we'll give you the store back the blue, um, you know, the police union is going to take that and they're going to leverage it. They are a bargaining group. They're not a philanthropic organization, a bargaining group. A place to win. Um, so these candidates so far, despite the big spend, have been kind of ciphers. And the lack of televised debates, um, you know, has kind of underscored that. Let me also point out, to your point, we have a quiz at jackstoday.org, okay? An actual quiz that you, the voter, can take to see which mayoral candidate you agree with. On the big issues, taxes and spending, uh, public safety, health care, infrastructure, the arts, uh, all, all of the issues uh, that uh, deal with the future vision for the city, downtown development. Just go to jackstoday.org and look at the Voter Guide Mayoral Match Quiz. Let us know your thoughts. 549-2937. Mark in Warner Robins, Georgia. 
Hi, Mark. Calling from Georgia. Go ahead, Mark. Hi, this is Mark. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, this is Mark. Can you hear me okay? Uh, I just want to let you know, you know, all politicians have to deal with budgets, problems, plans, policies. But the bottom line is it comes down to the core values of the candidate. When I see all this mudslinging back and forth and egotistical issues, it really makes me question their, their content and their character. For that reason alone, I really respect Donna Deegan. I understand that public service is a thankless job, and I just want to let her know how proud we are of her for, for standing clean and clear. I think that has a core value representation for how she would run city politics. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you, Mark. That is certainly the campaign narrative of the Deegan campaign. Uh, she just dropped an ad, Mike Mendenhall, saying that for too many years, a small group of corrupt, powerful people has shut uh, the regular person out of uh, having a stake in the future of this city and that it's time to throw them out. Yeah, I mean, and I think if you you know follow that line of argument through, you look at uh, you look at uh, Daniel Daniel Davis. Uh, he's the you know CEO of Jack's Chamber. He surrounded himself with with you know a lot of people who have who have were who have either been part of uh, Lenny Cur- Mayor Lenny Curry's administration or have supported that administration. So as far as a policy standpoint goes, and I mean, I think you can expect a you know a, a you know a really a continuation of a lot of those a lot of those same policies. You know, pro you know. Uh, pro business, pro corporation, pro you know, pro downtown development. You know, really, you know, focusing, you know, focusing money on that. And, and I think you know, with when it comes to you know to Donna Deegan, to your point earlier, you were mentioning an infrastructure is a big part of her of, of what she wants to do. Um, you know that the fiscal health of the city at some point, you know, you know, it comes into play. I mean, we, we you know, the, the the city has had more money to spend recently, you know, because of of deferment of pen, of, of pension liabilities and stuff. The borrowing power has gone up, but at some point, you can only borrow so much money, and um, you know, and 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 we've kept a very very flat tax base. I mean, and so the next mayor is going to have to deal with that, especially if we're going to continue to pump more money into infrastructure, more money into incentives for developers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that, uh, you know, w- whether it's Deegan Davis or or anyone else in the field, I think that it's those are all questions that they're going to have to answer. Now, uh, to give equal time, uh, Daniel Davis is, has campaigned on also improving infrastructure, uh, adding more police to Jacksonville streets, uh, lowering taxes. Uh, he has also talked about. Uh, expanding after-school programs and enhancing parks and outdoor facilities. However, you can't really do that while lowering taxes. Um, so, Charles Griggs, you know, um, there are so many calls waiting, but uh, before we move on, let's get you and Jack's final thoughts. Go ahead. Yeah, I, you know, these are the points that always make it into the campaigns, lowering taxes, making sure the community is safe, uh, and then, you know, infrastructure, right? That's so easy. You know, it's so easy. Nobody's like to AG's point. Nobody's really talking about from from a policy perspective what we're going to do about some of these tough issues that are coming up. Um, you know, there, there's always something on the horizon. In fact, you you may recall, you remember when when uh, the the Curry Brown race was in play, uh, it was about pension reform, right? And um, you know, that's we believe a lot of people believe that's what got him over the top is that you know he had a plan to reform pensions, right? And, and we'll he, talk about pension right. debt in a minute, which is still a problem. Uh, here's an email from Fabrizio. Al Ferraro is a great alternative to Davis and Cumber and isn't getting enough attention. He spent 30 years running a small business. He's the only two-term member of the city council never to have taken a raise, 
and he was staunchly against the JEA sale. He's also the only candidate I hear talking about overdevelopment, which is a huge issue. Jack. Uh, last thoughts on the mayor's race. I think Donna's message is is good. Uh, I mean, I think she's, it's appealing to people at the same time. You, you know, throw the bums out only goes so far. There has to be a certain level of competence in City Hall. Uh, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. As you, nice segue into the pension stuff. Whoever is the next mayor is going to have to deal with these pension issues again, again. It's a cyclical deal, and you need the expertise. So not everyone in City Hall, not everyone in public service is evil. So I'll just leave it at that. With regards to um, Al, uh, we'll we'll. We'll get to pension and we'll we'll get to other things. Yeah, yeah. An email. Here's an email from Trisha. Don't forget, Al Ferraro voted no in 2020 on Jacksonville's human rights ordinance. Okay, uh, it's five four nine two nine three seven. As we talk about the biggest stories of the week, uh, local activists joined black lawmakers, faith leaders, even civil rights leader Al Sharpton Wednesday in a march to the Capitol in Tallahassee. They were continuing to protest. Florida's rejection of an African-American AP studies course. Sharpton denounced the governor and called for more opposition to him. Of course, DeSantis was reelected by a wide margin in November. Uh, The march and rally came after the state rejected this class. The college board released an updated course framework. Florida continued to pass on the class. Then the college board basically trash-talked Ron DeSantis at that point, escalating the fight. And now we're at a place, uh, AG, where the governor's saying, well, let's just do away with AP courses altogether in Florida, which is panicking parents trying to get their kids into Harvard. All the parents at Bowles and Episcopal (laughs) and places like that are saying, no, don't get rid of the AP classes, please. AG. (laughs) Yeah. um, Elections have consequences. Um, And apparently they come down to the college board also because Ron DeSantis has been teasing out um, a potential rejection of college board products, which would include advanced placement classes, include the uh, SAT. Um, Rick Scott, not an ally of his, has given him kind of backup on this saying, you know, that the college board has been unduly woke, basically, and it has this coming. You've got the Cambridge International, you've got International Baccalaureate, you've got dual enrollment alternatives, um, but nothing is as simple and streamlined as the advanced placements. Um, I know many decades back when I was going to college uh, from high school, I took a bunch of AP tests and I got credit um, for for courses I didn't even take. It was pretty easy back then. Yeah. Uh, That option would be foreclosed. But yeah, I mean, Ron DeSantis, I mean, he's running his pre-presidential campaign right now. Um, this kind of war keeps him in the news without having to basically declare that he's running for president uh, before the legislative session because he can't do anything until the legislative session is over. So a culture war fight like this, um, it's going to lead to some legislative action. We'll see where it goes. I mean, as we saw with the big fight with Disney, that kind of fizzled into big ball of nothing. Um, maybe this fizzles out also. But for now, it's rhetoric and news cycles and a lot of middle class parents who wonder, um, you know, how their how their kids going to pay for college. Um, they're wondering a little bit more now because this option could be foreclosed. Five. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Five, four, nine, two, nine, three, seven. Going beyond the AP issue, this protest drew a lot of people to the Capitol, Mike. 
and it included representatives from Jacksonville's Northside Coalition. And basically what they were there to do is to say, you're erasing our history. You're, you're erasing us uh, by removing this class. There are AP studies classes for all kinds of other ethnicities and, and parts of history. And to take this class away is to erase us. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is, I mean, in in certain respects, I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a broader, a, a, a kind of a, a, a broader uh, a, a fight than than what than what's happening here with the Confederate monuments monuments uh, here in Jacksonville. I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing, you know, uh, throughout the state, you know, and and in Tallahassee and in Jacksonville, uh, the these efforts to kind of to, to kind of filter. Uh, to, to, to filter, uh, you know, cultural interpretations. And, mm-hmm. and that's, and, and that's clearly what, you know, what these protesters were, were there to, uh, were there to combat. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I think too, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, the DeSantis was elected with a, with, with, with a staunch majority. And I, 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 it's hard to know if, if it, if it is his policies, uh, kind of fighting what he's, con- what he considers a, you know, a woke agenda in education that is really pushed him over the top. Or if it, you know, if it was just the fact that he was, you know, he was very, 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 uh, strong worded and, and, and steadfast in his push of that, of those ideas, plus a we- a weaker candidate and Charlie Crist as well. So I, I, you know, I think that, uh, so I think that you know, you know, is but but at this point, DeSantis has a majority uh, in both the the Florida Senate and the Florida House. He has nobody in the state house really pushing back against his agenda. You know, he's able to appoint people to boards and commissions that make these decisions. You know, the governor recently said that uh, school districts were taking books off shelves to make him look bad. Uh, there was a uh, that was you're following my rules. Uh, that that was really I'm, remarkable uh, because, of course, there was a national controversy after Duval County Public Schools took books on Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente off shelves. Uh, Hall of Famers, including uh, Aaron, who played here in Jacksonville at uh, our local park, uh, Smalls Park. You know, so. This has been a national controversy, uh, the governor's rules on books and, and education. So as they're starting to put books back on the shelves, Charles, they're asking parents and community members to help them review instructional materials used in Duval County schools classrooms. Of course, the budget for media specialists, what we used to call school librarians, has been cut People are actually being asked to fill out an 11-question survey, which is available until 5 o'clock today. If you're a parent of a student or a resident of Duval County, they want to know if you can help them review books because so many books have come off shelves to much national concern. Right. right. It's embarrassing that you know, we live in the United States of America and our education system is functioning like this. You know, we hire teachers, they're trained they go to school, they get certified. And part of that is, you know, being able to select books or reading materials that is going to be most appropriate for the students in their class. Uh, you know, I can remember a time when if you were a little more advanced than the students in the next to you, the teacher might bring you a book from home, you know, something that's a little bit higher on the grade level that, uh, that, that, that she would see just to test to see if you had any interest in that subject matter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those options have now been deleted. Right. And, and all because we're having these, you know, useless culture wars going on because, you know, politicians are trying to get higher office in another another level. We, we, we have to take the debate. This debate has to go not only from Florida, but public you know, nationally. 
so we can make sure that we have the, the quality education that our students need. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the, the, the rally that happened in, in Tallahassee this week, you know, showed that there is going to be some public pushback and there is going to be, uh, it's not going to be like one of those things that happened, you know, sort of with Disney when there was really no big uproar. Uh, you know, I think that the governor's office probably felt like they, they beat Disney, even though, you know, there wasn't really uh, anything that come out of it. They feel like they took on Disney and they won. But now here we are, you know, you know, just stripping our education system away in many ways. There are going to be people that are really upset about this, not only from the AP courses, the books, and the way t- teachers are treated, all the way down the line, and you're going to see a tremendous pushback here. And I, I, I keep coming back to the fact that they're just asking the public now to come in and review books to see what's appropriate to put on shelves and what isn't. We have sunk. Nothing. What could go wrong there? We, we, <laughs> we, we, we sunk to a new level of dystopia. I, we, are, <laughs> I mean, we are literally deputizing media specialists in Duval County in order to deal with this situation. I mean, if, if the governor is of if the governor's position is that books are being taken off the shelves to make him look bad. Well, <laughs> it's certainly working. Uh, that said, uh, I, I, seriously, where do you begin? This neo-woke mo- movement is is seemingly spiraling out of control. And it, it's like any other virus, I think. How does what where where does it what any reactionary movement ultimately burns itself out? It will, it will, it will, it will collapse on its under its own weight. But what damage is done before it ultimately collapses? That's the mm. question. Five four nine two nine three seven. Richard is downtown. Hi, Richard. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Uh, I just wanted to to add a little something. Donna does not advertise it. I'm a. I personally know Donna, and no one seems to know that when she was in college. Her father, who has had no kidneys because he's lost his use of his kidneys, she donated one of her kidneys to her father. So when she, and when of course when she had the cancer, they cut one of her, half of one of her lungs out. So this gal was running marathons with one kidney and and uh, one and a half lungs, and it speaks to her character as far as being a tough person who who really would be able to do this job better than anybody, I think. Okay. All right. Thanks for that. Uh, And as we talk about the biggest stories of the week, we realize some of you are still on hold and want to weigh in on the mayor's race, but we have a lot of other news to get to. So we're going to move on and uh, let them talk. I know. I I appreciate all the calls and let uh, whoever you support. Don't know the time. Yeah, it's five four nine two nine three seven. Okay. This is another big story from the week. The city council passed, A law against panhandling this week, despite concerns that it's the wrong move to stop desperate people from asking for cash or money along busy streets. A few council members voted for it, even though they made sure to point out they didn't like it or its consequences for people who are homeless, hungry and have no money to pay a fine. But in the end, 16 of the 19 city council members passed this bill after about an hour of debate. Only Reggie Gaffney Jr., Joyce Morgan, and Brenda Priestley-Jackson voted no. Uh, This law would make panhandling a crime and even penalize people who give to panhandlers, people who stop at an intersection and hand someone money or food or water. The sponsors of this bill, A.G. Al Ferraro, who we've mentioned a minute ago, and Kevin Carrico, say this is about public safety on the roads. Yeah, and... 
you know, Carrico has said multiple times it's not an attack on homelessness, which um, raises the question, you know, why do you have to protest so much if it's, if it's not? Um, you know, it, it was interesting that the three people voted against it. Um, they, they had different rationales. Joyce Morgan didn't say anything in debate. Um, Reggie Gaffney Jr. at one point suggested that the panhandlers be Baker acted instead, which is a three day at least involuntary confinement in a mental health facility. Um, I don't know if that's an improvement. Uh, Brenda Priestley Jackson, I think, got to the heart of the matter, which is that the bill is fundamentally discriminatory. Um, it, it picks winners and losers. Um, and the losers would be marginalized populations, um, homeless people um, specifically, but also African-Americans um, writ large would be more subject to this enforcement in that, in that read. Mm -hmm. um, Republican council members said, well, they can let's use a nonprofit community, which, of course, the nonprofit community, um, that big slush fund that we have for them, um, that's the that's what's always invoked every time we have an issue, whether it's an increase in murder rate or what have you. Um, but when when I look at this bill, I mean, Kevin Carrico was able to carry this bill in part because nobody ran against him. Democrats didn't bother. Mm -hmm. So Kevin Carrico, rather than having to worry about a campaign, uh, could try to sell this piece of legislation. Um, there are also constitutional issues with it. Um, panhandling mm -hmm. bans been knocked down across the country. Um, this one involves um, an esoteric permitting process that's still being worked out. Of course, why work out the details before you pass the bill, right? <laughs> um, and it looks like cops, firemen, um, privileged groups that get permits will be able to panhandle at specific times. But you know, people that actually need the money um, you know, they're going to be subject to enforcement. And, you know, JSO said in committees, they, they don't really have the staff to do this. But that's not stopping the city council from giving them an unfunded mandate um, to do just this. So, you know, if you, you know, see cop cars in intersection and, you know, you hear about murders going uncleared, well, don't put the two together, please. Mm. Okay. And uh, as he mentioned, uh, Mike, panhandling, is actually protected speech under the First Amendment. And it was brought to my attention recently. The Supreme Court ruled on that case almost 50 years ago after an argument by a Jacksonville lawyer related to a local Jacksonville vagrancy case. So there's actually a connection here in Jacksonville to this Supreme Court ruling protecting panhandling and solicitation. So it is likely that it will face a court challenge, and it is likely that the city might lose in the end on this. Yeah, I mean, and before it was passed uh, on Tuesday night, uh, the city's office of general counsel was actually questioned about that by the by the city council members, you know, w whether or not this would, you know, be, you know, lose a constitutional challenge. And the 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 the, the claim was is that, you know, that they had the permitting process that they'd worked out would, you know, would would uh, would take care of that, would take care of any constitutional questions. So but I mean, that remains to be seen whether whether the OGC's interpretation of of, of the law is correct. And I also think it's interesting, too. I mean, you know, like you said, it was it, this this bill was framed from a point of public safety. But, you know, but like AG said, groups like firefighters, uh, you know, little, little leagues, you know, folks like that to go into some of these areas to pan or to, to, to collect funds to raise money. I mean, they, they one of the questions that the council really failed to address is what's the what's the difference as far as from a from a distract a distraction, per, you know, position like, you know, it does. 
do people that are that you know large groups of people that are collecting money in these in these intersections for for causes uh, are are they any less distracting than a single panhandler? That was that question was never really brought up. It was never really rooted out. Um, you know, it was just it was just said, well, this is about public safety. But you know, those nuances were never were never really fleshed out. Uh, Charles Griggs, there are certainly more people out there than there used to be since the pandemic began. Shelters are often full. That is a fact. People uh, are out there desperately trying to get money, get food. Uh, you know, uh, people. Now, you may have an opinion uh, that they're not legitimately struggling. Some people may feel that way, but a lot of them are. And so, the question becomes: What more is the city prepared to do to help these people uh, beyond what we're already doing? And the answer is probably not much. Yeah, the logical step seem would seem to be to address the problem first. You know, well, how did this begin to happen? Versus, um, you know, putting in more enforcement measures. Um, in you know, preventative measures or policies would help, like additional funding to figure out how um, we can make sure people aren't panhandling in the first place. Um, the other thing is this this could be a slippery slope. What's to stop someone from interpreting that being on the sidewalk is, you know, part of the right of way that you can't, um, you know, just stand on? You know, what about people standing in, you know, bus stops or near bus stops? So, uh, the, you know, the, the law, of, you know, the police can enforce this law pretty much any way they like, any way they want to stop people on the street and say, hey, you know, just because you've been standing on this, you know, in this area for a certain period of time, you know, we get a chance to, you know, enforce this particular law. And um, it's it's really a slippery slope and an opportunity for a lot of margin for error for enforcement of this law. Jack Webb, Councilman Kevin Carrico was on the show the other day and he mm-hmm. said uh, he's heard nothing but praise from his constituents who want to see some sort of action taken on this issue. Well, he certainly took action, didn't he? Uh, that said, notwithstanding the general counsel's position, it is constitutionally infirm and it's going to fail. All right, so we're wasting taxpayer money defending the indefensible. That said, my question is, if Melissa Nelson elects not to enforce this ordinance, will the governor remove her from office? That's my first question. And my suggestion to anyone who's busted for violation of this ordinance is to grab an Al Ferraro sign and wave it in the median and you're good to go. Thanks for that. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Speaking of Al Ferraro, uh, I want to briefly mention the Pumpkin Hill Preserve story. Uh, The city council also voted 10 to 9 in favor of a new development in northeast Jacksonville near a sensitive preserve, the Pumpkin Hill Preserve. Ferraro voted no on this, uh, reflecting the views of his constituents, but uh, the uh, council voted it in despite vocal and loud opposition. That did not go over well with uh, really a bipartisan uh, swath of voters out there. So I wanted to make mention of that. And then also I want to devote a little time to another story, A.G., that you reported on this week. A white paper circulating in Mayor Lenny Curry's office suggests that the city would face extreme financial impacts if pension reform was reversed. Uh, mayoral candidate Daniel Davis has said all options are on the table regarding pensions for new police and fire hires. But the white paper notes that could come at a big cost for Jacksonville's workforce and quality of life and capital improvements. The infrastructure improvements, several of the mayoral candidates are saying they want to bring about AG. 
Yeah, I mean, this is fiscally ignorant as it gets. Um, and and to me, um, yeah, this white paper indicates why it, it would cause a, a balloon payment of almost $500,000 or $500 million, sorry, um, if they did this uh, to basically make up for the deferred payments uh, that were expected to be paid by the sales tax, which goes into effect in, in three years by city estimates, 2026, that better Jacksonville plan tax moves over. Um, the $9.6 billion revenue that is expected from the tax would be forfeited according to the city analysis. Um, you would see workforce cuts. You would see cuts in the capital improvement plan. If you remember when Alvin Brown was mayor, when capital improvement plans um, were uh, tens of millions of dollars at best, I think it was 20 million one year. Um, and you remember the attrition of city workforce, you remember cutting cops, you would see that again. Um, so for a candidate to basically bargain for an endorsement from a public safety union and say, hey, look, we're going to reopen the pensions Pandora's box, even though the legacy debt isn't going to be paid off until 2056. Um, to me, that that is something that needs to be teased out a lot more for Davis or Cumber or any of these candidates to say blithely that all options are on the table, like they don't remember what it was like when Alvin Brown was mayor, like they don't remember what it was like when Lenny Curry had to push this through Tallahassee. And by the way, uh, the state legislature's intent was that Jacksonville was off the defined benefit pension, um, you know, train for good. Um, the rhetoric in the House was basically they're going to take more responsibility over their own retirements, uh, the defined contribution plan. And people are saying, finally, uh, take it to the Florida retirement system. Not so fast. The Florida retirement system's got a $38 billion unfunded liability. Um, it's gone up like $4 billion in the last year um, because investments in that have tanked. Um, Ron DeSantis is putting more money into that. But I don't see Paul Renner um, going to bat for Daniel Davis's um, frivolous campaign promise um, and basically saying, yeah, let's go ahead and reverse the thing that I voted for. That would be Paul Renner's legacy as speaker. Mm -hmm. um, he's Paul Renner's fiscally conservative um, by trade and by inclination. Um, something like reopening up the Pandora's box or Jacksonville pensions would make that legacy a lie. All right, folks, uh, that's a good summation of it. And, you know, it's not going to get a lot of airtime on local ads you're going to see on TV in the mayor's race. But it's something to uh, be aware of because it will affect all of us in one way or another, depending on how that shakes out. So thank you for that. And before we say goodbye, let's go around the horn and round up some stories that might have missed your attention this week. Yes, it's our lightning round. Thank you, Isabella De Silva, for the sound effect. I love that. <laughs> Mike Mendenhall, what's going on with you? Well, um, just a week after announcing that they that the University of Florida and the city were going to explore having a, a new health and fintech uh, expansion center here in Jacksonville, uh, the mayor's office um, filed a bill to fund to partially fund it, twenty million dollars for uh, for in this fiscal year uh, that would go toward you know to toward expenses of uh, on getting the project you know moving forward and then a, a satellite uf campus uh, in effect exactly and then a, and then possibly an additional 30 million over the next two years so 50 million dollars of city money toward this and we don't really know exactly and we don't know yet what it's going to be no we don't yeah. So that's so thank you for yeah thank you for including that that is an important story charles griggs yeah 
I just have to announce that uh, Melanin Market is happening this weekend out east in East Jacksonville during the uh, April Randolph quarter. And uh, everyone should come out and uh, see what's going yeah, on. Yeah, by the ballpark, right? Yep. And there's going to be the uh, HBCU Heritage Classic there, the too. And um, another team just playing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So check that out Saturday, the Melanin Market at 121 Financial Ballpark and take in some baseball, too. Jack Webb. Welcome to Jacksonville, Florida in late February. The weather's beautiful. It's been a really, really bad week, and I'm looking forward to getting out in the boat. Thank you. All right. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Before it gets too hot, it's a good time of year to do that. Uh, have fun. A.G. Gankarski. Yeah, um, I'm I'm looking at the property appraiser race. That's the only other <laughs> countywide uh, constitutional officer race. Uh, you got Joyce Morgan running the Democrat. But I'm curious to see what happens with Jason Fisher, the former state rep who He's runs from a number of other offices. Him and Danny Beckton are in that. Um, I'm curious to see how that heats up. Hmm. Um, you know, Fisher obviously wants another job. So does Beckton. Uh, one of them will emerge to face Joyce Morgan in May. Thanks for that. Again, uh, vote by mail ballots have already gone out. So study up on the candidates. You can do it right at our voter guide and quiz at jackstoday.org for all of the local races. Now, today at noon, join us on the Florida Roundup. I'll be there with my new co-host, Danny Rivero of WLRN. We'll look at how people are reacting to the state's moves on education and also why ESG investing has become uh, a battleground. And then Saturday at four, Dr. Joe Servant of Mayo Clinic. Join him for this week's What Health, What's Health Got to Do With It? Microbiomes and how they impact cancer risk. That's Saturday. And I want to thank all four of you, Mike Mendenhall, Charles Griggs, Jack Webb, and A.G. Gankarski for being here. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Melissa. Thanks, Thanks for right, Thank you, Melissa. Thank you. In a moment, Winterland 5 comes back to downtown next weekend. We are going to speak with the festival's founder and CEO about the big bash that is coming up in just a few minutes. Don't go away. You're listening to First Coast Connect on 89.9. We'll be right back. This week on Science Friday, the technology of spy balloons, what they can and cannot do, plus why you should care about the wonderful world of seaweed. Seaweeds do in the sea what trees do on land. 
If we didn't have seaweeds along our coastline, the coastline would die. Dive in with us on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. Lawmakers are sounding off about a trio of mystery objects shot down over U.S. airspace. What in the world is going on? Also, inflation cools and the heat gets turned up on railroad officials. Why do they pull out of a meeting met to assure local residents about a huge chemical fire caused by a recent derailment? More on the Friday News Roundup next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Winterland 5 returns to downtown next weekend as the free two-day music festival takes over Riverfront Plaza. This year's lineup features internationally touring headliners, including 90s rock icons, the Dandy Warhols, legendary Brazilian band Os Mutantes, and emerging artists with big followings like Sudan Archives, The Nude Party, Jacuzzi Boys, and more. Plus, Winterland has invited nearly two dozen local and regional acts to perform at this two-day festival, which is free to attend. All of the proceeds from on-site purchases go to support Winterland's future endeavors. Local musician and producer Glenn Michael Van Dyke is the founder and CEO of Winterland, and she's here now to tell us more. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. And we're going to share some music from a few of the artists performing. So tell us all about Winterland coming back next weekend. Yes, next weekend. Um, It's free, two days of nonstop music on the water. Um, We're really excited. We um, this lineup is was a was a dream. Um, And yeah, I'm, I'm just really looking forward to it. You put this whole thing together. How did you envision Winterland when you first came up with the idea? Um, well, it's funny. I had a a meeting, a lunch meeting with uh, with our friend Matt. Um, I think you're familiar with him, the um, cultural editor of uh, Jacksonville Music Experience. And we uh, talked about bringing a, a festival like this to Jacksonville. Um, and I think when we envisioned it, we uh, were envisioning something like what's going to happen next weekend. But the reality of growing it to this point, um, you know, we just put a bunch of pallets and um, an old space downtown and invited 10 bands to come play and called it a festival. And mm-hmm. um, with help from the community, we've, uh, you know, slowly built it into what it is. And um, yeah, we're really just, it takes a village to put on. And we're so grateful for everyone who's believed in us and yeah. uh, helped in to help us. Yeah. And uh, go to jacksmusic.org for more about Winterland. And of course, our JME, jacksmusic.org, the Jacksonville Music Experience will be there at Winterland. But let's listen to some music, beginning with Dandy Warhols, indie rock icons from Portland. This is Bohemian Like You. They'll be playing. You got a great car. Yeah, what's wrong with it today? I used to have one too. Maybe I'll come and have a look. I really love your hairdo, yeah. I'm glad you like mine too. See what looking pretty all right, so they're headlining Saturday night, right? Yeah. Tell us more. Uh, the Dandy Warhols are, um, if you're not familiar with them, they were huge in the 90s and uh, um, maybe one of the last bands to get one of those big major label record deals where they could, you know, make um, like mm-hmm. really fantastical music videos. Check it out. That's the Dandy Warhols Saturday night, but uh, not to be outdone, Jay Maestro local singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist will be performing at Winterland. Here he is with Metaphysical. Inner visions this 
life or light from bright screens. What you seek is what you find, and there's no time to rewind. That's nice. Now, Maestro is also performing this weekend downtown as part of the JWJ Hip Hop Festival at James Weldon Johnson Park. And then he'll be back with his full band for your festival, Winterland on the River, Sunday night. Yeah, that's right. And he's a local legend, a local composer, um, a JU alumni, um, a really wonderful musician. Yeah. And leader in the, in the music community. He teaches lessons and leads uh, youth choirs as well. That's so important to point out because there's such a strong local music bed of talent here, and I'm so glad you're showcasing it at Winterland. Okay, let's talk about Sudan Archives, uh, R&B singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist originally from Cincinnati. Sunday night, they'll be at Winterland. Here's Selfish Soul. So you're really booking um, different genres, different parts of the country for this festival, it sounds like. Yeah, the, one of a uh, part of Wonderland's mission is to not be genre specific and right. to just kind of celebrate all kinds of music because um, that's what it's you know meant for is just bringing people together. Yeah. And last but not least, Os Mutantes. This is a legendary Brazilian band. Their late 60s albums are considered essential documents of 21st century music. Let's listen. All right. So how can people be part of Winterland? They can just show up because it's free, right? Exactly. If you want a, a VIP ticket, um, all yeah, all all purchases go toward um, sustaining the festival and uh, paying artists and and, uh, and other creative people in, in our community. Well, congratulations. She is CEO and founder of Winterland, musician and producer Glenn Michael Van Dyke. It's going to be a great festival, so get out and enjoy it next weekend on the river. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening. Here's a little more music for you. Make sure to come back to me today at noon for the Florida Roundup, where we round up the biggest stories from all across the state. That's today at noon. I'm Melissa Ross. This is WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Have a great Friday and a great weekend.
you do, does your activity produce or consume? So be mindful how you spend your time. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.